Hello, I'm Kate Jabot, and this is SITREP, your regular look at defence and foreign affairs. This week, it's all change in Washington. America has been tested, and we've come out stronger for it. We will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again. As President Biden takes office, what does it mean for Britain and the rest of the world? This sense of having some kind of stable US leadership is is pretty crucial right now. The military is called up to help out in hospitals struggling to cope with coronavirus patients. Plus, how should the UK react after Russia arrested the country's most prominent opposition activist five months after apparently trying to kill him? If they wanted to kill him, they'll kill him and they'll take whatever words the, the West throws at them, thinking the West isn't going to do much more than complain. After four tumultuous years in Washington, D.C., America is under new leadership with a promise to restore strained alliances around the world. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. Thank President. You. The crowds were missing from Joe Biden's presidential inauguration, but he had a message for the millions watching across the country. My fellow Americans, this is America's day. This is democracy's day. A day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. Through a crucible for the ages, America has been tested anew, and America has risen to the challenge. We've learned again that democracy is precious. Democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, Democracy has prevailed. Politics doesn't have to be a raging fire, destroying everything in its path. Every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war. And we must reject the culture in which facts themselves are manipulated and even manufactured. The world is watching, watching all of us today. So here's my message to those beyond our borders. America has been tested, and we've come out stronger for it. We will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again, not to meet yesterday's challenges, but today's and tomorrow's challenges. And we'll lead not merely by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. May God bless America, and may God protect our troops. Thank you, America. 
highlights, of course, from Joe Biden's inauguration. Well, between coronavirus, the economic impact of the pandemic, the crisis over racism in America and the violent mob attack on the Capitol two weeks ago, President Biden has a lot to be getting on with. But what about that promise to heal relations around the world? Well, Sir Nigel Scheinwald was Britain's ambassador to the United States between 2007 and 2012, and he joins me now. Sir Nigel, thanks for joining us. America will lead by the power of its example. What did you make of Joe Biden's inaugural address? Well, I think it was giving us a new headline. There was an enormous sense of relief, which I think will be felt uh, in most countries uh, around the world. There is a very obvious reset back to a traditional American role of valuing allies and working with rather than destroying international institutions and taking a sense of responsibility for trying to lead in the world. Now, I don't think Biden believes that you can just turn back the clock to a, you know, an America which bestrode the world as it did uh, un, unchallenged, really, in the 1990s or, um, or, or earlier. I think he realizes that the world has become a much more disorderly and, um, and difficult place. But he wants to begin the task to rebuild confidence in America and a sense of predictability. When you're an ally, what you want above all is that sense of predictability and reliability in your alliance leader. And that's what we've plainly lacked in the last few years. Despite his domestic focus, but when will he have the time to devote to rebuilding those international relations? For all countries in the world at the moment, a combination of the pandemic and continuing as it were, normal domestic issues, certainly we've had enough of them in the UK, mean that most governments are very domestically focused. That's a, that's a fact of life. It's been the case really for, for, for most of the past decade. He's a president who, more than most, is versed in international affairs. It's what he spent his Senate career um, focused on. An American president, uh, A, can't avoid it, and B, in his case, he will want to get involved internationally. And he has an incredibly strong security, foreign policy and defence team, um, experienced and well-qualified for all the jobs they're going to occupy, which will be able to take the weight um, of American activity abroad. So I think this is, this is going to be a slow rebuilding process. Um, and I think allies have to sit up and, and also change tact, because instead of damage limitation under Donald Trump, they now need to start working again with an American administration which will need their help and want to work with them on the big international issues. Well, also with me today is Professor Michael Clark, former director of the defence think tank, RUSI. Uh, Michael, President Biden spoke about the need to end what he called an uncivil war, but his predecessor was absent, evidence perhaps of how much work will be needed. Yes, uh, we don't really know how deep the fissures really are in American society. They seem very deep at the moment because people, this is still the week of President Trump. Uh, and we'll see. And Joe Biden said all the right things yesterday at the inauguration. It was, I thought it was, a, it was a very good address and it was very well delivered. But if he can't succeed as, as well as he wants to, if he can't heal these divisions, there is a chance that America will slip into a profound political crisis for a few years, maybe for the whole of Biden's presidency, which may take it off the front line in world politics for some time, for a, quite a few years. There is no way in which this century will not be a century of American power, just as it will be a century of Chinese power. But there is a possibility that this crisis inside America may still have some way to run. And as Nigel says, we've got to be proactive about that. We've got to help America as much as possible
to think ahead into the 2020s, not just wait for it to come to us. Uh, so Nigel, President Biden has started by undoing some of Donald Trump's policies and he's taking America back into the Paris Climate Change Accord. How significant is that? I think it's enormously significant, um, not, not least because this is one of the areas where the UK government has uh, an obvious opportunity to work with not only the new administration, but actually uh, all its big international partners, because we happen to be hosting this uh, summit meeting uh, on climate change at the end of the year in Glasgow. It's a little bit of luck uh, on our part that it now happens in a year where um, we can engage the new American administration. Um, and, you know, climate change has been a fault line uh, in, uh, in international politics for, you know, for at least 20 years now, with America in and out of international agreements. Uh, and I think it's very significant uh, for us and for the rest of the world that um, Biden will now be able to work with the rest of the world uh, on it. Professor Michael Clark, in the former administration's final days, Cuba was put back on a list of state sponsors of terrorism. Houthi rebels in Yemen were labelled as terrorists. And Mike Pompeo called Iran a home base for al-Qaeda. Was the aim to, to tie Biden's hands internationally? Yes, it was said that uh, Mike Pompeo was, was uh, planting a lot of landmines for the Biden administration in the final a week when he could. I don't think anybody's taking his recent tour particularly seriously. The things he said about China and the Uyghur populations in Xinjiang was probably more significant, where he said that China is engaged in a policy of genocide, and that leaves it out there for the Biden administration to deal with. The other issues that you mentioned on Cuba, the Yemen, um, the idea that uh, Iran is a home base for al-Qaeda, which is fairly ridiculous, um, I don't think they will have much traction because everyone was just watching the Trump administration run down. And there is a sense that we're waiting to see how the Biden administration will react. So Nigel, you mentioned the UK's opportunities to build re relations with the US. How would you assess the state of the relations at the moment? Because there is talk of poor relations between the Biden White House and Boris Johnson's Downing Street, a real possibility. I don't think they're poor. I think that, um, you know, Biden knows the UK, he knows the, the rest of Europe. Um, you know, he's been dealing with us for five decades. Um, and his team know the contribution that the UK can make in the security, foreign policy and development areas. So they're aware of our strengths. I think the difficulty is Brexit. And the difficulty is the perceived closeness of Boris Johnson with President Trump. I don't think Biden is the sort of person to bear a grudge. But I do think we have something to prove after the EU-UK post-Brexit deal that we really are in business to work with our partners uh, one of the big gaps in the uh, EU-UK deal, which was uh, delivered before Christmas, uh, is any cooperation, uh, structured cooperation, on foreign policy, um, defence and security. It's something which, um, which, in practice, the government can do something about, rather than simply asserting uh, our national sovereignty the whole time. Working with others doesn't diminish that. And I think as Biden looks at the UK, he'll want to see us moving forward from Brexit and starting to work with Europe. He won't want Europe, the, the big European powers, squabbling. And the UK has also to uh, put something behind the talk about global Britain and really start working some of the issues that Michael referred to before. Is the UK going to deliver a really concrete contribution on issues like the Yemen? on Iran, where we played a huge role uh, in delivering the nuclear agreement with Iran over a decade before that. Can we continue to do that? What are the practical areas where the UK has something has something to offer? So Nigel, good to speak to you. Maybe you'll come back and talk to us when those, uh, those summits are happening. It'd be good to have your views on that. So Nigel Scheinwald, thank you very much for your time.
Well, as we've just been hearing, Joe Biden is promising America will rebuild vital alliances. But what will that mean for America's allies? Well, Dr. Julie Norman is from the Centre for US Politics at University College London. The arrival of Biden in NATO will be welcome. We know that under Trump, there was a lot of saber rattling, so to speak, from Trump about potentially pulling out of NATO, undermining the institution, as it were, whereas for Biden, at least there will be that sense of commitment to the organization and the institution. We can expect a much more multilateral engagement and, again, just a return to much more stable, predictable foreign policy than we saw under Trump. Well, Tobias Elwood chairs the Commons Defence Select Committee. When I spoke to him earlier, he told me Joe Biden's arrival is a cause for optimism here as well. Yeah, I mean, what an incredible scene yesterday. I think the world was slightly relieved to see the back of Donald Trump. We didn't see much leadership over the last four years. At the same time, many of those threats uh, that we speak about so often were starting to grow. Many of those challenges were starting to get more complicated. And we're going to now see, I think, a sense of rejuvenation, a sense of purpose coming back into what the West is all about. Big questions, therefore, as to what role Britain chooses to play. Yeah, and on that note, um, how does the UK make a good impression in those first few months? Well, the first thing we could have done, of course, is complete the Defence, Security and Foreign Policy Review. That has to be a priority now for this government. We need to establish ourselves what our ambitions are, what our intentions uh, will be on the international stage, and then upgrade our own defence posture accordingly. That is exactly what Joe Biden will be looking at. We have a fantastic opportunity in hosting the G7 summit. Uh, it'll be the president's, I think, first international trip to certainly to Europe um, when we meet in, in Cornwall. Wonderful opportunity for Britain to then stand firm with the United States once again, as we did almost 70, 80 years ago, uh, when there was another reset to what the, the world stood for. Of course, we had confirmation this week that HMS Queen Elizabeth will be joined by an American destroyer on her maiden deployment. It's presumably a good time to be embarking on this kind of mission. It is. And it's worth pointing out that regardless who's the occupant of the White House, who's in number 10, the bonds between our uh, military community are absolutely second to none. They're the best in the world between any two nations. And that's reflected in the fact that a frigate will be accompanying and supporting our aircraft carrier. They work so, so closely together. So it's absolutely fantastic to see that. And long may that continue. And one of President Biden's first international questions is going to be, of course, what to do about the remaining troops in Afghanistan. You know, it's not just Afghanistan, but it's other parts of the world as well where we have a military presence. But this, again, is where I think British thought leadership can come into it, because you're not going to solve any of these issues by military means alone. Mali is another place where we're putting in troops ourselves. There needs to be you know, political uh, persuasion. There needs to be long-term stability, trying to solve and provide long-term peace in places like Afghanistan, in Libya, Iraq as well, and now, of course, Mali too. Tobias Elwood there, and we'll hear more from him a little later on. First, the UK's official death toll from the coronavirus pandemic is heading towards 100,000, and the pressures on the health service are still growing. This week, officials in the West Midlands called in military help, echoing military assistance to some London hospitals. In Northern Ireland, more than 100 personnel were drafted in to help and the military has been deployed too in the southwest of England. Meanwhile, in Scotland, the army started work setting up 80 coronavirus vaccination centres. Brigadier Robin Lindsay is commander of 51st Infantry Brigade in charge of the military aid to civilian authorities in the pandemic. Many of those helping on this task live in Scottish communities. They're from the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards, based in Fife, 
they're Scottish soldiers, they work in Scottish communities and want to be of assistance to those Scottish communities. So I think combine that with the skill sets we bring to bear, you know, we're really pleased to be able to help. Lieutenant Callum McLeod is from the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards. Every day that this goes on in these vaccination centres aren't set up, uh, people are losing their lives and it's... Um, important that we get this completed as fast as possible so we can move on to the next site and then set that up and ultimately help people in Glasgow and, and further beyond. I'm from the local area and it's really feels really good to be helping out the local community, giving a bit back to them. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, the vaccination programme is our way out of this, but the growing calls on the military to help out in hospitals demonstrates we've still got a long way to go. Yes, uh, I mean, when we realised that vaccines were going to be available, everyone was very optimistic and we started to say, well, maybe we'll be out of this by the spring. When we look at the logistics of it all, it's clear that we're going to live with this virus for most of the rest of this year. But the, v the vaccination programme is our way out of it and in a way this is this is a classic military scenario in a funny sort of way because Britain has performed badly in every respect in this pandemic as far as public health goes with PPE with preparations with the lockdown we've lost every battle but we may be about to win the final battle the battle that matters which is the decisive battle at the end to be the, 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 the big first major country that comes out of this with a fully vaccinated population. And to win that final battle, significantly enough, we need our own military. The NHS can't deliver it itself. The NHS is essential because it is this centralising organisation that can make all this happen. But what we need is this sort of military we've got that can surge, that can be flexible, that can just get the job done. And there aren't many militaries in the world that can do it as well as ours do. So put together, the NHS NHS, local authorities, volunteers and the military and you've got the capacity there to win the final battle which eventually we will. Michael Clark, stay with us. This is Zitrap. Russia's most prominent opposition activist returned home last weekend, five months after a nearly fatal nerve agent attack. Alexei Navalny was immediately arrested at the border. As he was taken away, he told reporters he wasn't afraid. But the last time he was in Russia, he ended up poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent in what he and Western officials have described as an assassination attempt by the Russian state. Well, we were just hearing from the chairman of the Defence Select Committee, Tobias Elwood, who also told me the West must stand up for Navalny. He felt a sense of duty, a democratic sense of duty, to go back to Russia in order to pursue the democratic cause. Don't forget, he can't himself personally stand in the elections himself, but he can rally and wave the flag for democracy in a country where, again, we're seeing a slide. We all hoped, you know, uh, after the glasnost and perestroika, that Russia would would again lean up to more Western values. That hasn't happened under Putin. So we need to you know, encourage what we, the, the democratic process and uh, make sure that uh, we dismiss the accusations that are placed against Navalny, which are so unhelpful uh, in a country which itself is not in a very strong position. So given the obvious danger to his life, why on earth did Alexei Navalny return to Russia? A question Paul Osborne put to Russia expert Stephen Diel. Someone actually sent me an email on Monday morning saying, uh, is he completely mad or completely brave? And I did answer and say, completely brave. Uh, he realised, first of all, that he could not really be an effective leader of any opposition to Putin out from outside Russia. He doesn't just sit in Moscow. He travels around Russia when he's there. 
that's how that's how and when he got poisoned last year with with Novichok. So he realised that if he stayed in the West, and I think there is no doubt at all that a number of countries would have been quite happy to give him uh, political asylum. But if he'd done that, he would have been a voice crying in the wilderness. And in Russia, the wilderness is pretty large, and he would have just lost his his authority. He wants to be seen across the country. He wants to campaign across the country, he has a network of supporters that he works with. None of that will be any use if the next attempt to poison him is more successful than the last one. That, of course, is absolutely true. But actually, that's another aspect of why he went back rather than stayed there. Because, of course, he knows that just being in the West would not be a guarantee that he wouldn't be attacked again. Unfortunately, Putin has a long record now of assassination in the West. In, in Britain, the most, uh, the best known example, of course, was Alexander Litvinenko in 2006. Then there was the attempt to uh, kill uh, the Skripals um, in 2018. The problem, of course, is being in prison. He can't travel around Russia as he has been doing. And they seem to be preparing more jumped up charges to try and keep him in prison for some time. Putin faces parliamentary elections later this year, but he's also changed the constitution and he can stay in power probably for another 15 years. So what chance is there of any real significant reform in that time? He also uh, ensured that a law was passed saying that a former president would be immune from prosecution. So he seems to be hedging his bets. You know, he made, Putin is now 68. He may decide by 2024 that Actually, you know, he doesn't want to stay in power. If he's got enough people who he thinks might guarantee his security, he might want to go and live in this incredible palace that Navalny has shown and, and live out his days there. So, yes, he might stay on until 2036, or indeed he might die in that time. Um, he's been absolutely terrified of the coronavirus. He's uh, spent most of his time in a... Uh, a, a dacha, um, a, another palace, effectively, on the outskirts of Moscow, and people going to see him have had to go through a special tunnel where they get sprayed with disinfectant. Um, so he's he is very, very scared of the virus. If something were to happen to him, uh, he dies, um, there's undoubtedly would be a, a struggle for power, and that might just leave that crack for someone like Navalny to step in. With Joe Biden in the White House rather than Donald Trump, does that perhaps in some way do a little bit to keep Mr Navalny safe, given the potential repercussions were he to, to meet a, a grisly end in Russia? I would hope so, but I wouldn't... If I were a betting man, I wouldn't put any money on it. Um, I think the fact that... Uh, that when Navalny went back, he was immediately detained. And then there was this kangaroo court in uh, in the police station in Moscow on Monday. That was, um, I might say, sticking the middle finger up to the West and saying, look, you know, whatever you think about this man, whatever you think, you know, he's he's a Russian. And as far as we're concerned, we don't like him. Uh, we're, you know, we're still after him. I, I don't think what the West says will, will have any real effect. Putin's Russia has become such a rogue state that I think they would just, if they wanted to kill him, they'll kill him and they'll take whatever words the, the West throws at them, thinking the West isn't going to do much more than complain. And that's part of that's been part of the problem for many years now. Stephen DL speaking to Paul Osborne there. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, that's a pretty chilling idea. If Russia wants to kill Navalny, they'll just kill him, regardless of what the West might say. Yes, sadly. I mean, there is a concept in Russian called uh, Vranyo, 
and Vranjo refers to the time when you tell a lie that you don't believe and you don't expect anyone else to believe it, but you tell it anyway. And that's where the Russians are with Navalny, because whatever happens to him, they'll just look us straight in the face and they'll say it's this or that, and they won't believe it. And they know we don't believe it, but it's the, it's the technique of the mafia boss down the ages, Vranjo, you know, here it is, you know, I don't care whether you believe it or not. Uh, but in a way, what Navalny's got going for him, and he is a very brave man, is that he is now probably the most celebrated um, dissident since Solzhenitsyn. So he's known throughout the world and he has the power, as he demonstrated this week, even when he was in custody, to embarrass the Putin regime and his supporters can embarrass the regime. And remember, there is a great deal of domestic unrest in Russia because of the economic situation, which President Putin has not been able to do very much about, even though he's tried over the last three or four years. But the system is unreformable. It's creaking. And if Navalny can stay alive, um, he will be able to keep up this doctrine that there is actually a better future for Russia if people will only grasp it. Now, for years, ministers have promised to improve mental health care offered to former military personnel. This week, one NHS trust in London has launched a new high-intensity service for veterans in need of help in the capital. Rosie Layden has more. I'm a lived experience expert. As Rob said, I've been involved in the development of the HIS project. Speaking at the online launch of the NHS High Intensity Service, or HIS project, Anthony McHale joined the Royal Marines at 16 and served in the first Gulf War. Years later, he suffered a breakdown. My head just went completely wrong. So I went to my GP and said to him I wasn't feeling well, I was feeling suicidal. And he um, prescribed me some antidepressants and said, you'll be all right in six weeks. Within that six weeks, I drove my car into a brick wall to try and end my life. After another failed suicide attempt and a stay in prison, Anthony finally found more effective treatment. Now he's directly involved with NHS efforts to improve their services for other veterans. And encourage them to the appointment not just to go, but to go with them. Hmm. Because sometimes you need someone to hold your hand and drag you when your brain's not letting you get there. I think there's just something about having a peer support worker in the high intensity service as being possibly the first person that you might speak to. Rob Henderson is the operational service manager of the HIS project. Someone who may have been in the same situation that you were, uh, coming alongside you and kind of translating some of the NHS speak and helping you feel confident to um, to get support. Each week we're getting busier and busier. The more people hear about us, the more different organisations are referring into us. NHS England is working on this in collaboration with Three Forces Charities to try and provide a more rounded service. Simon Locke works for Walking with the Wounded. So being a veteran myself, and working in my previous roles, I managed a, a veteran support and accommodation unit with 32 veterans in it struggling to move forward with their life. Very quickly, you realise that veterans won't speak out and ask for help most of the time. Um, they will just struggle on through. And a lot of the time, the, the snapping point comes too late. We're trying to get the message out there that it's OK to ask uh, help. We think that the need is high because there are a lot of veterans out there who are unfortunately uh, struggling in silence. NHS England hope to expand their services to all regions in the coming months.
Rosie Layden with that report. Finally today, we turn to Sandhurst, the Royal Military Academy, respected around the world for the quality of its training. Now it seems it may be welcoming some rather different new recruits, civil servants. We are looking at, at having a, um, a, uh, a campus. Uh, it might be uh, that we fund it that with the uh, military and that we have uh, we do something at uh, at, uh, at Sandhurst where there is you know fantastic uh, facilities. The Prime Minister telling a committee of MPs last week of his plans to step up the training offered to those working at the top of government. But what could a dose of military training do to the suit-wearing classes of Whitehall? Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, while civil servants are used to having pretty demanding bosses, they're probably not used to the sharper tone of some of the military. No, indeed. And the point about Sandhurst, I mean, whatever you think about the suitability of training at Sandhurst, is that it turns, you know, young young boys and girls into young men and women. They come out with a sense that there is something about them. It trains them in leadership. And although it's pretty tough going, and it's meant to be tough going, it's very stretching, um, it really does turn them into different sorts of people. And that's one of the things that, you know, our civil service has lacked since the Sunningdale Civil Service College was closed in 2012. We've not trained our civil servants in any significant way for the leadership roles that we want them to take. Mm. And newspaper reports suggest ministers could be sent to a boot camp too. Is, <laughs> is there anyone, put, come on, put your money where your mouth is, is there anyone where the, from the cabinet you think could benefit from being first in line? Oh, believe me, I'd send them all. Um, now, I have to say, I mean, Ben Wallace, he was, a, I think, a 19-year-old when he, he he went to Sandhurst as, I think, a 19 or 20-year-old to join the Scots Guards. But of the others, the first one I'd send, Gavin Williams, <laughs> um, was defence secretary. He was known as Private Pike in the Ministry of Defence, so he should go. And I'd, I'd, I would certainly send Liz Truss because it would maybe stop us taking selfies all the time and get on with her job instead. I think I think a, a dose of realism, a, do, a dose of leadership would would come good. But basically, they should all go. Liz Truss, uh, Gavin Williamson, you can reply to us if you want to on that one. That is it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.